Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. It is my pleasure to welcome you once again to Grief and Rebirth podcast. Today's interview with psychotherapist Edie Nathan about her wise new book titled It's Grief, The Dance of Self-Discovery Through Trauma and Loss, is going to be very helpful, especially to those of you who are actively grieving or are facing a situation which is likely to bring about grieving in your lives. I read Edie's insightful book during my recent visit to Miami, where I was grieving the possible loss of my 94-year-old mom, who had just suffered a heart attack. Edie's book was a comforting, informative companion to me during that difficult time. I'm happy to report that mom is now feeling much better, and having read Edie's very worthwhile new book, I am already recommending it to others. Edie, welcome to Grief and Rebirth podcast. I am delighted to be sharing the gift of you and your wonderful book with our listeners. Let's begin what is going to be an extraordinary conversation with this question. How has grief touched you throughout your own life, motivating you to pursue the calling of a psychotherapist who focuses on grief? It's so good to be here and to talk about something that we often don't talk about, which is our own grief stories. And our, our grief stories are affected by so much. They are affected by how we live our lives, by previous losses that may not be the loss of a loved one, but may actually be the loss of a core sense of self. So I would say that my coming into this work was occurred because I had a lot of losses, but they... They, they, the culmination of those losses uh, came upon after having lost my first love. And uh, I was 27 years old and he died of lung cancer and I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to handle it or manage it, but it was because of his loss that I now do the work I do. I say that, but... I also recognize that had I not had all of the other losses, I don't know that that would have been the determining factor for the change in my life, right? But because I had all of those losses from being agoraphobic and my freedom was lost to having been sexually abused, bullied at a young age, all of these were tender moments of loss of grief that I kept pushing down and pushing down and pushing down. And when Paul died, that was it. It was like an inner explosion of the layered mosaic of internal grief. Wow. Wow. Edie. For those who don't understand, what is agoraphobic? Thank you. So uh, agoraphobia is actually a 
state of severe anxiety where you have such a panic disorder that it becomes difficult to even go outside. Oh, wow. It becomes difficult to walk outside. It becomes difficult to, to just emerge outside of your own space or room. And there are a lot of people who have, suffer from agoraphobia, that incredible anxiety, who ultimately never get out of their houses. Wow. That's amazing. So all the platitudes about you can push through it, you can think positive and all of that, they need a little more high-powered help. Well, it took that. a lot of work. It, you know, you and I, before we started talking uh, and recording today, we talked about the fact that it, 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 takes, it, it takes a group, it takes a community, right? And it really took, it took a community of, of professional people and family to help me navigate my way out of it. And it, it was very tender and hard. And, uh, but uh, I, I went from being out there in the world and being in the theater to all of a sudden not being able to leave my apartment wow. to having to really work through all of the steps. And Paul honored that and he was part of that. And he Quite helped me navigate my world in many, many ways. So um, I had to come out of my shell. I had to learn how to get to the hospital, how to walk 15 flights up the stairs to get to him when he was in the VA because I was afraid of the elevator. So when, when I'm talking about grief on multiple layers, you know, it, it, it comes on us in, in, in ways that we can't even determine or expect. Which is one of the reasons why you have such a profound, deep understanding of it, because you've been through it yourself on so many levels. We're so lucky to have you here. Could you tell, you, you, you joke in, in uh, we were talking, you say, please tell our listeners everything they need to know about grief, but are afraid to ask. So go for it, Edie. <laughs> so everything that we're afraid to ask, for example, does it end? Will it end? That, that's probably the number one question. I'm sure you understand that, right? Yes. Yeah. Will I ever stop suffering with this? <laughs> Will I ever stop suffering? So, so it's, a, it's kind of a, a, a two-pronged answer because on one hand, yes, the suffering changes and shifts and it's not knocking you over and gripping you the way that it normally does. On the other hand, I don't know that we ever want the memories of what we lost to leave, because then we're not us. And if we're not us, then who are we? I mean, who we are is based on all of the experiences we've had, and that might be loss as well. It's loss of a spouse or, or loss of one's freedom or loss of one's soul. So, so certainly it doesn't end, but it changes. It morphs into something that is more livable, more yielding, and it has much less of a grip on us. Right, but still contributes, the good parts of us still contribute to who we are. That's what I have found. That's so great. Is it limited to the loss of a loved one, a grief? And does the process of grieving change depending on our relationship to the person we lost? Like if we've lost a mother as opposed to losing a spouse, is it a different form of grief? And is it limited? I'll bet it's just not about, it's about all sorts of losses, right? It's about all sorts of losses. You got it. Yeah. And, and these losses, you know, you bring home a, a really good point. You know, 
is the grief about, you know, when you lose a mother going to be different than when you lose a spouse? Well, it depends on so many factors and grief is like your fingerprint. I don't know anybody who grieves the same way. And I don't know anybody who grieves the same way for things that they've lost. Mm. So, you know, if we think about a spousal relationship or a partnership, it doesn't have to be, you know, husband and wife. It could just be, you know, you're, you're in partnership. Right. Uh, and you, you lose that partner. Well, let's say that partnership was contentious. There may be some form of relief when that partner passes away. On the other hand, once you reckon with that relief, there might be grief for what you weren't able to accomplish. Mm. So, you know, it's, it, it's complex. And, and depending on what that relationship was, the complexity you know, grows and wanes. And this is, is un, undetermined what one's grief is actually going to look like and how it unfolds. So it sounds to me like in certain ways, part of the healing process is to suspend judgment about yourself, about the way you should be doing it and come to an acceptance about this is my experience and how I'm doing it. And that's okay. And not let people, not allow people's judgments to come into your own processing of your grief or your own experience. You've just brought up so many topics. I don't even know that you're aware of all the topics you just brought up. What do you do when you, when you meet people who are judging you? How do you deal with that? How do you stop the judgment of yourself because, because of the, perhaps the social or the, um, the comments by friends or coworkers? And, uh, and then, you know, what is the scope of one's grief? And, and, and how do you determine when it's over? So I'd like to first go to this kind of conversation around judgment. Go ahead. Number That's one. Great. Yeah. Okay. So judgment, you know, I, I often, I think you, I hope you're going to like this. You know, I often say don't should on yourself. Oh no, I love that. So true. <laughs> right? So true. So, so don't should on yourself in terms of how long it's going to take you to get released from the grip as you learn to dance with your grief, because this is a dance. It is learning the steps. It is learning how to have a voice with it, how, how it comes in and how it goes out. I liken it to the tide and to respect and honor that you're going to be moving like the tide. Sometimes you're going to be overwhelmed with the emotions around your grief. And sometimes you're going to feel like you have no emotion at all around the grief. And that's fine. The goal is to get to that sense of calibration. Now, in terms of when people say it, it's three months, it's six months, it's a year, right, right. You're, still, you're still going to that group? What's wrong with you? I just got that comment on Facebook from someone that, that, that she heard from, from a coworker. You're still going to that group? And the answer is, you're not in my shoes. Mm -hmm. And you don't have a right to tell me how long it's going to take me until I'm ready not to be in that. Right. And it might be a year. And it might be two years and it might be three years and I'm getting something from this. So thank you for thinking I should be over it, but I'm never going to get over the loss of my son. I'm, I'm, I, I'm not going to get over it. I'm going to learn how to live with it. Right. That's beautiful. And it's so, so true. I mean, people are so quick with their, with their judgments 
And I liken it to, you know, if you're in a room with 20 people, there are 20 different headsets and 20 different sets of experiences. How can one of those judge you? That's but right. that's another part of self-love when people can love themselves enough to be okay with who they are and not give that voice more weight. Absolutely. And we also, when we are in the active state of, of mourning, when the grief has recently hit us, sometimes we can actually teach the people around us how to behave around us. And sometimes there's an overwhelm. Like people, because you don't know, there's a sense of helplessness around your friends and family and they just want to help. And so they send over dinners and they send over gifts and they send over so much and that may not be what you need. And you have the right to say, I'll tell you what I could use. Could you take the kids for an afternoon? Right. Could you go for a walk with me? Could you answer my emails because I feel overwhelmed? And if you can do it by asking, people will be more than happy to give you what you need. They're doing what they think you need instead of perhaps what you really need. And guess what that does? That gives you a sense of control in what otherwise feels like you have lost all sense of control. That's fabulous. I found that when I was grieving my husband, I had trouble accepting help from people. And then I started thinking about it as, and none of the things that people are doing is going to take away my grief, but they're like drops in a bucket. And I should let those drops of drops in because eventually they'll collect in the bucket and I will have, I will, I will, I'm going to let them love me and help me um, through however we all do this together. And I, speaking of that, I am fascinated in your book about how you talk about the experience of grief and how it differs for extroverts, introverts, and ambiverts. And I am sure some people are going, what the heck is an ambivert? But I found that to be, and I, I was able to literally say, oh, this one is, oh, that's an introvert. That's why he's processing it this way. So could you educate and enlighten all of us about that? It's, that's a fabulous point you make in your book. Thank you so much. One of the goals of the book is to help people see that when they get to know themselves, the kind of help that they will reach out for may be different depending on what they learn about who they are. So in this piece, introvert, extrovert, ambivert, it's a, it's a process of, okay, so who am I? How do I cope? How do I handle things in the best, you know, in, in, in the, on the best of days, how do I handle things? When at the end of a day, do I need to go home, sit with myself and just kind of like breathe? Or do I need to go out and hang out with friends and go dancing? Or like, what do I like to do? So knowing that and will help you know, okay, you know, if I am an introvert, chances are I'm not going to want to go to a group and talk about this. But I might want to go talk to a friend or maybe to a therapist one-on-one. -on -one. If I'm more of, of an extrovert, you know, I might like a group. Maybe individual therapy or talking to one person isn't going to be my thing. And an ambivert kind of is a little bit of both. Sometimes they need to be more introvert, introverted, and sometimes they need to be more extroverted. And that's fine. And they're, they're just going to have to pace themselves and they will get their directives by listening. 
and the listening to the self, that's maybe one of the greatest gifts that grief can give you is learning how to listen, learning how to hear what your body and what your five senses are telling you, all of the five senses. So you're saying the greatest gift for grief is to discovering yourself, tuning into yourself. Yes, yes. Because, you know, otherwise we're, we're moving along and we usually want to put it away and we often don't have a scope from which we can dissect what's going on with, within us. And the, the best thing we can do often is just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through this. I'm going to cry. I'm not going to talk about it too much. I'm going to hide it. There's a shame factor or a regret mm-hmm. factor. And there's a lot of shoulds and there's frustration. And often people will just go into hiding around it. And there's trouble in, in that. There's emotional trouble that, that, that happens with that, that actually kind of adds to the complexity of grief. And when, and when, when that occurs, complex grief occurs. And when complex, complex grief occurs, we then have health issues, we have emotional issues, we have drugging issues, drinking issues, um, not sleeping enough or sleeping too much. And we, we find that we are moving between extremes. And any kind of extreme behavior, you know, is, 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 is really hard to compensate for, especially when we're, we're, we're grieving. So the idea here is when you start to listen, it is a, it is a, it is a gift. And that gift is to start to do things differently. In the book, I break things down. I ask you a lot of questions. I ask you to sit down and just journal, write some things down. Think about how you can slow yourself down. Ask for help. Don't do it alone. Uh, do some service. That's actually in my, my grief toolkit. So I, knowing, am I an introvert, extrovert, ambivert? You can then begin to determine how you, how you focus and handle yourself and how you can then heal yourself. Actually, that's a great way to even start to use grief to find out who you are. Because to tell you the truth, until I read your book, I thought I was an extrovert. But I, I found out I'm an ambivert. And the other thing that I want to say is that um, I think, and you will tell me if I'm mistaken about this, but I think complicated grief is also when you have unresolved issues from your childhood and it triggers for instance, you've lost someone and now you have this unbelievable feeling about being abandoned. And that may be coming from something else that's happened to you. So in discovering yourself, wouldn't you say that the grief also gives you the, uh, the, um, the opening to heal a lot more than just working through your grief as oh, you get to know yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it may... <laughs> So uh, that I, I have, you know, we talk about grief and we talk about the loss of partnership. The loss of partnership is, is certainly, you know, one thing that we talk about, but it, it can be the death of a marriage. And one, one, one client came, recently came in dealing with, you know, truly this, this, this whole divorce process, which is mm-hmm. a, a huge grief process, mm-hmm. major, because the person is still alive and they're hurting one another and there are children involved. 
And what this client said was, oh my God, I never realized that my, the way that I have been cut off in my marriage, I was taught as a child. And this conversation is more about how I, how I learned to cut off and I wasn't allowed to have emotions. And then I was not an emotional woman mm-hmm. in my marriage. And that may have contributed to why we are now going through a divorce. So absolutely, you know, complex, complicated grief is, is, is certainly um, influenced by our past, by our childhood, by trauma, by trauma that we might not have even remembered because the brain, and I talk about this in the brain, in the, in the book, the brain is, um, holds all of our memories and the body holds our memories. And all of a sudden the brain gets triggered and all of those neural impulses start to say, oh my God, remember this, remember that. And it's like quick, it happens quickly. And you start to get a lot of memories, dreams, flashbacks, things that you may not have remembered, things that were buried for good reason to protect you. Because that's why the brain goes into that amnesia state is a protection. So all, all of a sudden for a client to say, oh my God, this is what, this is what happened. This is when it happened. This is when it started. Now things are going to start to come up in ways that it's a good thing she's talking about it. Yeah. She's become awake. She, and I call grief a process of awakening. And I, I agree with you. That's, I, and that's a beautiful way to put it. So let me ask you this. She discovered this in therapy with you. Would you say that everyone who goes through grief should be in therapy? Is it, is, what, what, is your, um, what, is, what is your take on that? It's an individual process. And there are no shoulds. And there are people who know themselves well enough to know that therapy may open up way too many things that they're just not wanting to look at. And that needs to be honored and respected. That's the first time I've ever heard anyone say that. And I think that that's very, very wise because some people are so shut down and you just, and the instinct is to try to get them to open up, but maybe it's too dangerous for them and you have to respect that. Just one of, one of my, it's, I, I've actually learned this. One of my favorite teachers and best teachers is a man by the name of Bessel van der Kolk. And he wrote the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Mm-hmm. And if you have suffered trauma, it is um, one of the best books on trauma. And I, I say that because one of the things that he really advocates for is not having a client immediately tell their trauma story. And as a result of that understanding and knowledge that I've gained through his work, uh, I, I've come to understand that some folks need to guard their, uh, their secrets, that which they do not know, that which they have needed to keep silent, that which they know might be there, but they're not completely sure. And they do so for good reason. Mm. And that needs to be honored. So when people come in to see me, I will often say to them, you don't know me well. I want you to get to know me before you share your story. And let's work around it. Let's, let's understand what's going on in your body. 
and let's allow some of the storyline and the narrative to come out more organically. I would imagine going to you for therapy would be a very safe experience that people, you cultivate such a sense of safety that people can really open up to you, which is a blessing. I had that too when I, when I was grieving and it was, it's, there's no words. It's wonderful. Um, what are the different phases of grief, Edie? There are, I mean, there's a lot of talk about there are five, but I, but I know that they go back and forth. So could you educate us, please? I would love to educate you on this. This is a, this is a pet peeve of mine. So, uh, so uh, I'm, I'm so <laughs> glad that you asked the question. Uh, so Elizabeth Kubler-Ross designated five stages of um, ages when she initially wrote about them actually had to do with someone who was dying. And, and it was really about what someone goes through when they are dying, not necessarily, and the grief associated to the dying process, not necessarily for the living, not necessarily for those, those people who were the survivors of, 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 of that loss. So it, it, it often gets misconstrued. And I, I thank her for her work because she got the conversation about death and dying out there. And we needed that because we, 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 we just wanted to clean it up and sanitize it. And it, nobody really wants to talk about it. So that's fantastic. What I see are these 11 phases. And I'm not going to go into every phase, but w- w- the first phase is about numbness and, and it's about denial and, and, it, and, and it's about shock. And I see that first phase as home base. It's where we get our protection. And no matter where you are in the grief process, I see it as, as the place you go back to and you continually go back to it. And you, you start to move and grow and then something gets scary and you go back to numb and you go back to shock and you go back to denial. And that's great because it's, it's kind of where you, you meet yourself again and then you come out of it, you come out of that cave, you come out of the numbness and the hysteria, and you go, okay, now I'm ready to move. And that there are many layers to, to this grief. And these layers in these, in these 11 phases, so you can experience anxiety and anger, and they, though they are different phases, they can move and dance between one another. There's role confusion. Who am I now that I am no longer a caretaker? Who am I? Now that I've lost a limb, who am I now that I've lost my children? Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I don't know who I am anymore because I, I was identified as this mother and, and I don't know what to do. So we go through all of these and the ultimate goal is let's get to forgiveness. Let's get to grace. Let's get to this place of balance and moving between you know, under distance and over distance, which, which are kind of emotional places of being, you want to get to calibration. And that is the goal of these 11 phases. And you, you're not going to find that they just disappear. You're just going to have an understanding of what you're facing. Can you give everyone your definition of forgiveness? Because a lot of people um, are, think that that makes whatever has happened to them be okay. And I know it's not about the, the, the perpetrator, it's about the person. And so can you, in your eloquent way, explain to people um, 
how you define forgiveness for your patients and all for your clients? I am happy to. Uh, <clears throat> so the phase is called forgiveness, letting go with insight, purpose, and understanding. And it's the intentional and voluntary process of undergoing a shift in the way you hold your anger, your, your anxiety, your rage toward the person who hurt you, the perpetrator, or toward the one who died. And it is, it's not about forgiving them. It's about allowing yourself to find forgiveness within you so you're not carrying the rage. It's a forgiveness of the rage. It's a forgiveness of the holding on to the story and the narrative so that it doesn't keep filtering through you and causing you to hurt yourself. And that's really the definition. And it's so, I think it's so essential because otherwise we get sick. Things happen within our bodies where, you know, where does that go if you're constantly harboring all of that? But it's a process, and I think sometimes you need a guide <laughs> to help I, you with I, that. I completely agree with you. And, you know, in the book, I actually line it out. So, you know, F is for, you know, finding a definition for yourself of forgiveness. O is order and model, modulate your most intense responses to the loss. Uh, R is to regroup. G is to give yourself a break, breathe, and create a new storyboard. I is to invigorate the soul and find ways to feel safe. V is to uh, be vectors are the path that you choose. And these, there are many to create and embody on this journey. And E is to energize healing by avoiding the lure of a vengeful mindset and electing to forgive, but not to forget. That's beautiful and so wise. This is another question that came from your book. Tell me about the masks that people wear in grief. We and, you, wear- and you have a background in the theater, so that, 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 even, that probably goes along with some of that. <laughs> so while you're talking about that, if you wouldn't mind even bringing in your background in the theater, which I think is so interesting to helping you to what you do. We, you know, as Shakespeare said, you know, we, we, we are all actors, you know, and uh, we are all on, on a stage, right? Um, and we are merely the actors, uh, and the world is a stage. So, you know, we all wear masks, and these masks, masks are very flexible. They, we have the mask that we wear when we go to work. We have the mask that we wear when we're a parent. And I, I kind of interchange the, the idea of mask and role. And it, it, it's, it's the role that we, that we play. And there is the mask of, I'm okay. And we spoke earlier about, you know, I'm okay. I don't need your help. I don't need anyone's help. I'm going to do this alone. And for some people, that's actually accurate. For some people, it's just what they're putting on. And it's that mask of, I'm okay. I don't need your help. That's okay. But meanwhile, they're dying inside. And they're feeling so desperate and so alone, but they don't even have the words for what's going on. And so it is their mask, and they're so good at masking, that, that 
be, you know, doesn't really allow people to, to step in or move in in any way. And so I talk about how can you, yes, have your mask, but also allow these other roles to, to, to move into being, like being able to find someone you trust or someone you can rely on or someone who feels safe and allowing yourself to unmask the I'm okay and, and allow them to see the fear, allow them to fear, see the vulnerability, allow them to see the depth of your grief, of your mourning, of how confused you feel, of how scared. That's, scary. That's very scary. Yeah. You're scared. Yeah. So scared. So this is about how to really help yourself move through the veil and unveil. And it's, uh, it's very hard to unveil. Uh, it's safe. So this is really about un- unveiling. So in certain ways, when you see people in society and they could be very hostile or they could be very aloof or whatever, it's, instead of judging it, maybe it's a good way to think that person may be in a lot of pain and may be closing themselves off. That's absolutely correct. That is so correct. It is, the mask is our most powerful foe and friend. Mm. Oh, wow, that's fabulous. And I can see that. And I know you talk a little more about that in, in the book. How has your being in the theater informed what you do? That was, yeah. I loved hearing about that. That's a very rich part of your experience. And you did Thank that you. before you became a therapist. I did, yeah. It, and it really, yeah, it really adds to the work because I, I see all the different roles that people work through. And m- my theater background, when I, when I stopped acting, uh, the first program that I went into was actually a drama therapy program. So I really see how people use their masks. And, and I will, in the work that I do with groups, we will make puppets, we will make masks, and that's all theater. And we will talk through those masks and we will have the, the grief mask and then we will have the mask where you have relief. And many people have never experienced that, that feeling of relief. So to, to actually embody it and have a mask made that looks like relief and actually address relief, it's, it's, I'm going to go back to the brain. It allows the brain to think differently about about the grief because, oh, so this is what relief looks like, or this is what inner peace looks like, or this is what uh, um, over, uh, overcoming my uh, intense reactions and my uh, overwhelming reactivity feels like because now I have a place to put it and to act out, to move through, to have a puppet, to have this mask, to do role play. Those are all ways that allow you to work through what often doesn't have words. Yeah. Oh, that makes tremendous sense. Wow. I love that. Um, what are the best tools to cope with grief? What would you say? How do you advise people? Like, all right, what, sh- what, what should I do? Like, I'm miserable. Where do I, where do I go with this? <laughs> Yeah, where do I go with this? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? That's, I don't, I, I feel so lost and I'm scared, you know? 
And one of the things that's so important is to understand that not unlike uh, Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, who was wearing these red shoes, and she never really knew the power that she had in those red shoes until the very end. And then those po- the power of those shoes took her back home. We have the first tool is the self. And understanding that you have the self as part of your greatest tool to healing. And if you, it doesn't feel that way. But in that, in that idea of the self, we've got the brain. And that is that neuroplasticity part that, that we've touched upon here today. The idea of changing the cognitions. I feel stuck. I feel trapped. I feel imprisoned by my grief. Grief. I feel imprisoned by my grief. Okay, I'm going to change that thought. I feel sad and I don't have to be imprisoned by it. Mm-hmm. And to begin to shift the cognitions, even if you do that once or twice a day, we know that that can begin some shift in the brain. Exercise. I'm a big advocate for exercise. If I don't exercise, if I, 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 I don't feel good. And what they know about exercise and the physiology of exercise and the brain is that it really helps the brain and the body to release, to release anxiety, to release anger, to release frustration. And then guess what? You get to start to listen to yourself and you've, because you've broken through the anxiety, it's very hard to listen when you're in a heightened state of anxiety or anger or role confusion. That exercise where you're actually sweating a little bit can really help break the, uh, the, 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 the concrete and the grip of, of, of the grief. Another, another piece which is a, little, is, a, is a little hard to imagine, especially if one is you know, really in the throes of it all, is service, donating time. And maybe not at the beginning, but six months, eight months down the road, think about how you might be able to offer your service to um, a homeless shelter or to maybe someone who's homeless on the street or uh, to give some time to your child's school or, or to offer some time at a hospital. Sometimes hospitals are charged, go to a library. Uh, that that kind of service actually helps us to feel that we are part of a community or we are breaking into a new community or um, we have the chance to be more than our grief. Also, it helps you make new connections. That is part of um, moving forward from the grief. I had that experience. I started working as part of my healing for an organization that helped children with grief. I figured if it was so hard for me, how does a child do it when they've lost a mother or father, siblings? And this organization, it's called Good Grief, and they, they have peer support for children um, in grief. And I was able, it actually, I was in a way working with grief, but it was removing me from my, my pain over my own grief in certain ways. And I was making wonderful new friends and connections from it who had an understanding that my other friends did not. So that, that leads me to 
since you spoke about the homeless, tell us about your inspiring story about the homeless woman in blue. Living in New York City, there are a lot of homeless folks, unfortunately, living on the street. And there is a wonderful woman uh, who is on 34th Street, which is uh, where my office is. And she is an artist. She's always painting and drawing. And she uh, is only in blue. And it's a very specific color blue. And as she wears this blue, she looks, she stands out. She, she's just this kind of stunning woman. So we have over the years gotten to speak, but she actually doesn't speak. She hasn't, I, I've never really even heard her voice. Mm. And what, what makes her so amazing is that even though she doesn't speak, she has a full life on the street and she writes to me on my phone because I have a, a note phone. And so she, I take out my, my little pen and she writes to me and she tells me what she wants. No, she only likes health food and she, uh, she only likes a certain kind of water, <laughs> and, you know, and she's, you know, she's very clear about what she does and doesn't want. And one day she wrote that she wanted a, uh, some canvas and some paints because she had run out. So I went to Michael's and I got her the paints and I got her the, the canvas and gave her some of the canvas paper and some of the paints. And then I said, you know, I want you to know I, I just finished writing a book and, uh, and I want to give this to you. And I showed her the book and she looked at the book and she looked at the paints and she stood up and she bowed, and then in the tiniest, tiniest voice, she said, thank you. Oh, my. And I thought, oh, like, she, she is allowing something to manifest in her that I've never seen in 10 years. And I thanked her. And I saw her grief have a chance to heal in that moment. Wow. Wow. And what a gift that you gave her and what a gift she gave you. Wow. It was mutual. It was, it was a mutual. mutual gift. And that's what I mean by tiny moments. In my groups, I, I am a big advocate for doing group work. And in my groups, I talk a lot about, you know, how we can give service and how we can help each other find the gifts in grief. Edie, what would you tell our listeners about the importance of healing and why it takes courage? Healing is an individual process. It's never what you think it's going to be. And it will take as much time as you need it to take. It is a daring process. It is a process of catharsis. And it is a willingness to take yourself on and go into the dark night of the soul. That's a whole other subject, the dark night of the soul. Um, and we've had, we've had someone on the podcast speaking to that. And again, our community, it's so amazing. Um, why does it seem like the national grief burden is at an all-time high? So many One hand, acts, 
so yep. many things going on in the world. I mean, it's it, 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 so much displaced rage. There's a there's so much displaced emotion. Period. Mm-hmm. And we don't we don't get a break. We are inundated with media. There's never a break, and we are getting information as quickly as it goes down. We get that information, and as a result, we never really get a break. We 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 don't get a hiatus from bombings or murders or children being shot at in their schools or people being detained and children being separated from their parents. And I, 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 that's not a political comment. It's a comment of grief, of loss. And so when we, when we see all of this going on, and we don't have a voice. I can't tell you how many people had difficulty when Christine Blase Ford was testifying mm. and the trauma that she was discussing and talking about and the grief that came up as a result of her testimony. The people who didn't know what to do with, with memories that were, were all of a sudden coming up that had either been abandoned a long time ago or actually they had you know, a shutdown in their brain, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, a dissociation, which is fine, you know, and all of a sudden she's talking and memories are starting to come. And that's why the book is also about the dance with, you know, trauma and grief and loss, because it's, it's not just grief, it's trauma and it is loss. So we, we, we're not able to shut it down. So one of the things that I really suggest to people is you need to have a cutoff time when you're not going to be listening to the news or to what's going on social media or to whether or not someone's responded to you on Facebook or Snapchat or or Instagram. It's like stop for a moment, no matter how old you are, and say, okay, you know what? I'm actually just going to look at the person who's next to me. I'm going to have this communication because we're losing, we're losing sight of, of our humanity. We're losing sight of being able to feel someone in a room. We're feeling them through Snapchat, but that connection and that and the idea of connectivity, we're, we're, we're losing some of that, of what it's like to touch someone. And, you know, there's an interesting statistic here and our, our young people, the you know the, the the people who are college age, are having less sex than our seniors. How interesting and, is that? And so you know, in my world, as a sex therapist and grief therapist, they're losing they're they're losing touch with their sexuality, with their sensuality, and there there there's a grief there. There's a loss there, uh, and it's something that I think we're going to be be having to look at and deal with and cope with. So, uh, and that causes rage, and that causes anxiety, and that the, the 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 lack of connection or the increase for competition. And and people don't understand what's happening to them. No, they they they, they don't have anything to compare it to. Right. 
you know, uh, because also a lot of these kids probably grew up with parents who were also looking in phones because they're at that age now where we've had our phones for 20 years. And so they may have looked at parents who were not actually gazing at them. And, you know, I, one of the things I also talk about in the book is, you know, that connectivity between the mother and the child, between uh, the, the parental unit and the child and the importance of, of, of having the parent gaze at the child, having the parent look at the child and engage. And that's all part of the developmental process. And that's missing from people because instead the child is looking at mommy or daddy and they're, they're looking at their phone. Yeah, the phone has become um, the, the, a member of the family. Mm-hmm. And not only that, every member of the family has one. Yeah, and it is also the way that children will, you know, the way that, 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 you know, people who are raising children, and it might not be mommy and daddy, it might be mommy and mommy, it might be daddy right. and daddy, right. you know, it, 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 it you know, our, our, what, what partnership is, thankfully, has become very fluid now. And so because of that fluidity, you know, we're, 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 we're in a dimension where, you know, we're not just talking about, you know, mom and dad, but, but, but whatever that partnership is, that, that these children need to understand what that partnership um, means. And especially if, if it's a gay couple or if it's a polyamorous family where there are, you know, three people who are parenting, that, that, that these children are able to see what family looks like. It doesn't matter what the definition of family is, but they have an idea of family and that, they're, that, that those are their people and that, that their go-to or the way that they get calmed is go to screens, look at your computer or mm-hmm. look at the TV. That actually the go-to is the eye contact with, with the, the, the family unit or with the parent. Yeah, and it's taking that away from them, really. That's uh, absolutely. That's yeah, yeah, that's wow. Well, and so how does grief become one of our greatest teachers? It teaches us to learn about ourselves and to hold ourselves with the greatest of sanctity and the greatest respect and the greatest honor. And if we learn to go through the grief process, we actually learn to have ourselves back. That's beautiful. This is such a wonderful conversation, and I know that people are going to want to get in touch with you, Edie. So could you give us all your contact information? I know you're having another workshop soon called It's Grief, Sexuality. And if you have a special offer for our listeners, that's even nicer. So would you like to talk to that? Absolutely. So I actually do have that group going on. And the way that they can find out more about what I'm doing, it's ednathan.com. That's E-D-Y-N-A-T-H-A-N.com. And they can certainly look at the website and they will see that all of the events that are going on, grief and sexuality. I also do wonderful women's group, wonderful wonderful women's groups. And the women's groups are about... uh, emancipating the self through grief. Oh my, so, what a wonderful yeah. subject. So it's a wonderful, wonderful subject. And uh, so ednathan.com 
And that is uh, the free giveaway is if they sign up through my website, I will send them a free grief meditation. Just mention this show or your name and I will send that right to them. I would go right for that. That sounds absolutely wonderful. It's grief sexuality. I'm intrigued. Just give us a little so our people listening know what that's about. They may want to go to that if they understand how it would apply to them. So sure, absolutely. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So it's grief sexuality is about women who have gone through many different phases of their own sexuality. So it's really for all ages. It, it's from women who are just discovering their sexuality to women who are going through menopause. And I like to have multiple age ranges in the groups because everybody learns from the others' experiences. And there can be grief and loss over the menopause experience, and there can be grief and loss over the burgeoning of sexuality and fear and not knowing what to do with desire or unmet desire. So that is really what the group is about, and it's very dynamic. It, I usually run it for about, five, it's a five-hour intensive, and um, then from that group, we then go into um, a six-month program if, if people so choose to do that. Oh, it sounds wonderful. Just wonderful. And I, the, my, another question is for you to please talk about the golden thread and your tip for finding joy in life. The golden thread. We all have a golden thread and it moves through us and connects us and creates a, a, a sense of continuity and community. And when you experience grief, you have that golden thread and it threads itself to another person who's experienced grief. The thing is, is that there's no one who hasn't known grief. And so understand that you are part of that golden thread, that sense of connectivity, and therefore you are not alone. Oh, that's beautiful. And what's your tip for finding joy? To just connect to that golden thread or connect, is there more? Uh, connect to that golden thread and know that when you have yourself and when you listen to yourself, you are on your way to fulfilling the psyche, the soul, and the temperament of your own mosaic. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful way for us to conclude our interview today, Edie. This has just been wonderful. Thank you for sharing many profound insights from your book, It's Grief. The Dance of Self-Discovery Through Trauma and Loss with our Grief and Rebirth podcast listeners. You tell us that a personal strength comes from knowing the self through trauma and loss, and you embrace grief, teaching us to dance with it, one dance step at a time. This has been a very meaningful conversation, and it is surely meant to be continued. I'm sure you would agree. My heartfelt thanks to you, Edie, from all of us and the grief and rebirth community. And as I like to say, bye for now, because I know this will be continued. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.